This is our first service uh, officially in the building today, and we're thankful for this property because it looks like it's going to provide for our ministry needs in the future very well. But I do want to say something about the building, and that's this. It's just a building, okay? Truth be told, it's just a building. It is an organized pile of bricks. And yes, they are organized very well, and and they do look beautiful, but it did not become the church until everyone that's sitting in the room came walking through the door this morning. Then it became the church. The church is people. Everyone who has trusted completely in Christ for salvation and turned from a life of living for self and of this world, we make up the church. And in my hands, I actually have a, a, a set of, of keys, along with my car keys, to the church. And of course, these keys would be considered important because they allow us to gain access and they unlock the doors that allow us to enter. And as important as they might be, if we were gathered outside these doors, we'd still be the church. You can take the church out of the building, but technically there is no building to take out of the church because it consists of people. And the reason why I'm sharing this is because the Lord Jesus Christ is committed to building his church. He says it directly in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And it wasn't a building. It's people. And how does this happen? It starts and continues with the Lord Jesus Christ saving people and then sanctifying people. And then believers, faithful Christians are used to reach out to other people with the gospel, to reach out to them, to share the great need that they have so that they can grow spiritually according to his will. And this is how the church grows. It's God's work, and according to his master plan, it always involves people. And I share this because there was a specific passage that the Lord burdened my heart to preach today. And we've been making a journey through the book of Titus, and we're going to resume our study in Titus next week. But I want us to go to Matthew chapter 16, if you'll open up there. And the title of today's message is The Ultimate Q&A. Because here in this passage, Jesus asked the ultimate question. And eventually, the apostle Peter is granted by God to respond with the ultimate answer. And Christ wanted the 12 disciples to see it, and his desire is that we would see it as well. And so if you'll open up there with me, Matthew chapter 16, and I will begin by reading our passage. Again, this will, I believe, be a passage that encourages us because of its focus on people, will allow us to be a better steward um, and have a a better church stewardship of this area and what God has entrusted to us. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 16, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 20, which read as follows. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. 
I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one he was the Christ. Well, as your bulletin indicates, the message title is The Ultimate Q&A. And um, we are going to see three realities of the ultimate Q&A that should radically impact our faith and our continued growth in Christ. Three realities. The Lord boils it all the way down to one fundamental and precise question when he asks the disciples But who do you say that I am? This is the key question of history. It is the inescapable question. It will be the question that will either haunt somebody for all eternity, or it will be the question that will cause great delight and comfort. Jesus Christ is the central figure of history, the focal point of history, the maker of history, the one who stepped down from heaven into human history. Someone has wisely said, history is his story. It should be noted that no matter what country you're from, no matter what calendar that you use, whether it's the Julian calendar or the Gregorian calendar, it doesn't matter. They use the two letters BC and they stand for something before Christ, right? Christ is at the focal point of time for the entire world. And even the two letters A.D., which is a Latin phrase, uh, Anno Domini, which means in the day of our Lord, in its earlier expression, its fullest expression, it was actually Anno Domini Nostri Jesu Christi in Latin, which is in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. All history is truly centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And though different religions acknowledge the uniqueness of Jesus, in the end, they deny the vital truths that must be believed about Christ and his supreme authority as God, creator, and sovereign ruler. And more will be said about that a bit later. Even the early church had its battles and had to correct wrong teachings about the person of Christ. There was a heresy known as docetism. And or docetism, however you want to say it. Docetism basically was a teaching, an early heresy that taught that Jesus was not really a man, but only seemed to appear as a human. Well, the ultimate Q&A allows us to see the significance of getting it right. The sermon proposition is in your notes. Three realities of the ultimate Q&A that should radically impact your faith and continued growth growth in Christ. We're going to study the uncertain response, the ultimate answer, and the universal impact. Three realities of the ultimate Q&A that profoundly impact your faith and continued growth in Christ. And the first up to bat is this, the uncertain response. Verse 13 says this, and when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Allow me to add just a little bit to the context here. During this point in time, there were a lot of people that were asking questions about the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the people that were receiving their information about the Lord Jesus Christ were getting it secondhand. And even those who had uh, a direct connection to hear from the Lord, we see 
had questions. And we see this earlier in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it starts to allude to this when it says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. Then in Matthew 13, verses 54 and 56, it shares this. Jesus came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother, brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they all not with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And there are many more instances where the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ causes people to question. And it's important for us to keep in mind that even the miracles themselves were intended to help those who were unbelieving. They were to affirm the deity and the, the reality of who Christ was, his authority. But most oftentimes it left them amazed with questions. Our setting in today's passage is in Caesarea Philippi, which is about 120 miles north of Jerusalem and about 20 miles to the side of the Sea of Galilee in the upper uh, area of the Jordan near the base of Mount Hermon. And it's mentioned in Mark 8:27 that this is actually the furthest or the northern point and limit of the Lord's public ministry. And it's here in this spot where the Lord was determined to ask his disciples a very important question. This account in Matthew 16 tells of a time toward the end of Jesus' Jesus's earthly ministry is his last journey to Jerusalem, and he'll soon face the horrors of the cross. And he spent three and a half years instructing his disciples, and they've witnessed him as he has taught and instructed them. They have witnessed him as he has healed the lame and the sick and the blind and cast out demons and physically raised the dead. And yet, in spite of all of this, in a gracious act, the Lord wanted to make certain that they knew exactly who he was. They knew he was a great teacher, a healer, an unparalleled prophet that was uh, unmatched in, in the Old Testament. But they had never really talked about who Jesus was before this. At least the scriptures don't give any record of the disciples having any such conversations. And so, in a spirit of compassion, the Lord asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And here Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man as he asks the disciples who people think that he is. And he's not taking a public opinion poll. He's not seeking a, a popularity Q rating. He wants to get the disciples to answer the question. And so he leverages it by asking a, a, a freeing question in that, who do other people say that I am? What would they say? What are people saying about the Son of Man? And we see both the Son of Man and Son of God used in the Gospels. And the common understanding is that the Son of God implies his deity, which it does, and that the Son of Man implies his humanity, which it does. Jesus was the Son of Man. He was a human being, and he is the Son of God, and that he has always existed. He is the eternally begotten one who comes from the Father. He always has been, and he always will be. He is the second person of the Trinity with all the divine nature in fully human form. And so that's the common understanding. He is both divine and he is human. Two natures, one person. 
But the term son of man carries with it a little more weight than indicating just the humanity of Christ. And I want us to see this. And if you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, there's a couple verses. I I, want to read them for you. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 say this. And the subtitle uh, in the chapter is the Son of Man presented. And here Daniel has this vision, and these are the words that he says. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Beautiful verses. And we see here that the Son of Man is a very exalted figure. Not just a human figure, but an exalted figure. It was Jesus' fa- favorite self-designation, and he, he used it regularly. He, would, he, he said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be, he, come, he came to serve, right? Not to be served, right? Great paraphrase on Mark 10, 45, right there. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So he often referred to himself as the Son of Man. And I think the reason he did this was because on the face of it, the Son of Man is an ordinary phrase for being a human being. He was born of a man, and there's no offense there. Who isn't the Son of Man? But those with ears to hear, those who had ears to hear what Jesus was saying, could hear Daniel 7, in which he was claiming the very exalted role in the history of redemption. And he meant to do it. He was very subtle whenever he was talking openly about his identity to those with eyes to see. He wasn't blatant or so blatant that everyone would come and then grab him and and push him into the office of king. He had to steer a very narrow course in disclosing his identity, not just openly saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the king of the world. Come and acknowledge me as king. He didn't talk like that. Jesus was many times subtle about his claims to deity. He made claims that were explicit on occasion, and then on different occasions he made claims that were implicit. And only when the time was right, mainly when his life was on trial and he was standing before and he had been um, handed over to, to be put on trial, and he was asked the question, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the living God? Only then did he respond, and he said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming with great power and glory. So he confessed his open deity right at the point where he knew he would be crucified for it. So the Son of Man carries a very full meaning of Christ's humanity, and according to Daniel 7, it also exalts him as the heavenly one. And Jesus means to communicate both of these. And so the Lord asked the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And this reveals the uncertain response of point number one. Verse 14 says this, some say, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Note that all of these four answers are positive. Nobody is saying a demon or Baal or Beelzebub. He is asking the disciples, not 
who his enemies think he is. He already knows that anyway, but he's interested in their recognition and understanding of what's going on in the general, general populace. What's, what are they saying? And some were saying John the Baptist. And of course, John the Baptist had already been beheaded at this point. You can look back to Matthew chapter 14 and the opening two verses. And Herod actually thought that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated, okay? He thought he had come back to life. And again, this goes back to the reality that they really didn't have a full grasp or understanding on the miracles and his miraculous powers. Others say Elijah. And Elijah was raptured into heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2. He was called the prophet of old. And worth noting is that the Jews expected Elijah to come back as a forerunner to Christ, not recognizing the fact that John the Baptist had already come in the spirit of Elijah, making the way for Jesus. Still others said Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, one of the great prophets of Israel, who would, of course, had to have come back and would have been resurrected from the dead. And still they speculated, or one of the many other prophets. Good answers, but they're all wrong. They're closer than others, but they're not even close. And, and what's the point? It doesn't help to be close about who Jesus is. We must see him for who he is. You have to get Jesus Christ right. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. How a person lives their life and where a person spends eternity depends on their answer to this ultimate question. And just like a counterfeit uh, $100 bill that has no value, the same is true for all the uncertain responses about Christ. You must get Christ right. The Quran, for example, teaches about Jesus' unique role in history. It teaches that Mary was a virgin when she was conceived and that Jesus was the Messiah. Muslim tradition also affirms that Jesus lived a sinless life and that he could do supernatural miracles and that one day he will return to defeat an antichrist called the deceiver. It sounds pretty accurate. Unfortunately, Muslims do not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, equal equal with God in every way, in essence, in nature, the second person of the Trinity. They do not believe that he died on the cross, as the Bible says in the Gospels. Buddhists likewise, like Dalai Lama, regard uh, Jesus as a, a being who reached a state of spiritual enlightenment. Hindus refer to him as a, a, a Sayat guru, a true teacher, or even as a, a great prophet who should be worshipped as a god along with other gods. And many atheists Agnostics acknowledge and believe that Jesus was a great social reformer. And even within Christian circles, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they don't see Jesus for who he is. Ask almost anyone what they think about Jesus, and many, if not most, everyone will express some level of respect or esteem or even appreciation for him, even those who are not Christians. And the problem is this, an uncertain response will not suffice. And again, this is the one thing in life that you cannot afford to be wrong on. And the application for us is pretty straightforward. Just like in Jesus' day, there were people who were uncertain about who he was. And the same is true of our climate today, is it not? There are many, many people who are uncertain. Some might have some general facts. Some might have had limited exposure. Some are completely uncertain. Some have no idea, and many others, no interest to know. We know who Christ is. We know who he is. The grace of God through the gospel has allowed us to see who he is. 
The power and truth of the gospel took us from a place where we were speculating. It took all the guesswork out of it, and it allowed us to know Christ personally and intimately. And Hebrews 6.19 says, when speaking of Christ, our hope in him, that functions as an anchor to our soul. God takes us from a place of uncertainty and he wants us to know and cherish our salvation through our redemption and relationship with Christ. So much so that even 1 John, which emphasizes the deity of Christ when it comes to the end of the book in 1 John 5.13, a familiar verse to you all. These things have been written so that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know for certainty. God doesn't want us guessing. So here are some questions for all of us. Do we truly understand the blessing of the gospel and the ministry of reconciliation that God has entrusted to us by allowing us to see who he is, to know him, to know the reality, which so many people don't know? And are we willingly and ready and availing ourselves to actively engage those who are living in a state of uncertainty? Who is on your radar? Who is on your radar to share Christ with? Who has God brought to your path at work, at school, in your neighborhood, in our new church location? Who has God brought and and placed on our radar that we can have the opportunity of blessing them and serving them by our faithfulness to the gospel? It is God's purpose plan for each one of us to be reaching out and to help them understand and know the answer to the ultimate question. Our goal is to see them respond with the ultimate answer, which sets us up very nicely for our second point. Starting in verse 15, the Lord now asks the ultimate question directly to the disciples. Verse 15, and Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Jesus wanted to know what his disciples believed about them, about him. And this is an interesting point in history. This is a a, a time where things are changing. We would call this a a dispensation or an economy with God. The focus, the the, the church, Pentecost, is just about to start, right? The focus has always been on the nation of Israel. And there's a change that is taking place. And the Lord is going to be the Lord of both Jew and Gentile. He is going to be the Lord of all. And that's what our Lord was trying to gain a sense to help them talk out loud and answer the question, but who say ye that I am? I know they're saying Jeremiah. I know they're saying Moses. And some are saying Elijah or this prophet or that prophet. But who do you say that I am? Verse 16, and Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jackpot. And don't we just love it when Peter actually gets something right? We do. We, we're thankful. Peter, you got it. He provides the ultimate answer. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the appointed one, the chosen one, the promised one of the Old Testament scriptures. And this Hebrew word that's translated Christ or Messiah can be used interchangeably. And Peter's response is basically saying, you are the fulfillment of everything messianic that we have read in the Old Testament. You are the chosen one. You are the only one. And there is no other. And time won't allow for us, nor would it even be possible to chase down all the messianic psalms and prophecies 
But they are all there to affirm Peter's ultimate answer and his correct identification of the Lord. We know this, Jesus Christ fulfilled dozens and dozens of prophecies. Prophecies in the book of Isaiah, in Daniel, Hosea, Zechariah, Genesis, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Psalms. And Peter's statement is a recognition that Christ is the fulfillment of them all. But Peter, he, he just doesn't stop there. He also um, identifies him as the son of the living God, equating Jesus with God the Father, the one true God. Son of God meant equal with God. And this is important because the world that we live in claims that there is more than one God, right? That's the claim of this world. And this was also true in Jesus' day as there was a dearth of false deities in the Greek and Roman cultures. So some things never change. Even Caesar was worshipped as a god. You will be persecuted in this world if you say that Jesus is God and that he is the one and only true God. You will be persecuted for that. Just like standing up in a pro-choice rally and saying uh, to people that God is against the murder of unborn babies, you are going to get attacked with objections and you're going to be dismissed. And some of them, some of them will be venomous responses. And yet we can find great comfort earlier in the gospel in Matthew chapter 5 where the Lord shares these words in 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The ultimate answer led to the apostles being persecuted, did it not? All of them martyred with the exception of one. And we may not get martyred, but we certainly need to be prepared to face persecution. And I think as I, I, I think about even my own heart, there, there's a courage that is, is required there. We, we need God's help. We need to stand firm in the strength of his might, right? When those darts of resistance come. It's not easy, but it's what he's called us to do. And we also need to be prepared to defend the deity of Christ using our Bibles. Question for you. If someone were to ask you, where in your Bible does it say that Jesus is fully God, where would you take them? What passage would you immediately turn to and open up and share with them? Some of you, I know, have that foundation. Some of you have an answer right away. But for those that might be here today, I want to provide a couple verses that will bless you immensely. The first one is Colossians 2.9, which says this, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Great verse. Philippians 2.6 shares this, quote, Although he, Christ, existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Very helpful verse, especially to, to those we're witnessing to. And again, this is, this, is, this is God's word. This is what God is saying about himself. The Gospel of John asserts Jesus' deity uh, all throughout the Gospel of John and, and 1 John, but specifically in John chapter 10 and, and verses 22 through 30, which I preached a few months back about um, Jesus being God. Jesus is God because of the miracles that he does. Jesus is God because of the salvation that he alone gives. Jesus is God because he and the Father are one. Another principle we can draw from our study of these passages is, is this. Let's, 
let God's word do the talking, okay? In the end, it really doesn't matter what uh, Pastor John thinks. It, does, it doesn't matter what, what you have to say or even the person that we might be witnessing to and, and that's disagreeing with us, what they have to say. We want to point them vertical. And so this is a very tactful way to help them see that this is what God's word is saying. In the end, the argument isn't with you. The argument is with the God of the universe. And so before we move on to our final point, we get confirmation of Peter's ultimate answer from the Lord in verse 17 when Christ says these words, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And the Lord's use of flesh and blood here, it, it functions as a metonym which... Um, really allows us to exchange flesh and blood. We could say um, human or we could say man. Either of those words could be interchanged. The Lord affirms that Peter is blessed because this knowledge did not come from Peter himself. It was not anything that came from man or the power of man, but God the Father revealed it to him. It came directly from God. And this is truly a momentous occasion. Because Jesus had not directly taught the disciples the fullness of his identity. He had not yet revealed so directly until this moment in history who he was. As one commentator shares, God had opened Peter's heart to this deeper knowledge of Christ by faith. Peter was not merely expressing an academic opinion about the identity of Christ. This was a confession of Peter's personal faith made possible by a divinely regenerated heart. God the Father grants Peter eyes to see the reality of who God the Son is. And this is the only legitimate answer to the ultimate question, by the way. And this is exactly why 1 John five twelve says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And if you are someone here today and you have yet to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you have you have not life. That's what the scriptures share. You might be alive physically, but you are not alive spiritually. Today can be the day of salvation. Today is the day to embrace the great news of the gospel. You have to seek God's forgiveness and have an all-in moment with the Lord Jesus Christ. True faith and true repentance of your uncertainties about who he is. And by faith, come to him on his terms. Otherwise, your life, and all of us know this because our lives were there at one point, those of us who believe, they were just circling the drain, man. Just circling the drain. Ready to get flushed into an eternity without God. Today can be the day where God lights the spiritual fire within you to live a life zealous and burning for the glory of God. Your life no longer has to be consumed with chasing the lustful things of this world or the passing pleasures and the empty pursuits of this world, but you can serve and worship the true and the living God. From this point forward, all of this ties together. And we're going to see the significance of this confession in our final point of the message. Three realities of the ultimate Q&A that should radically impact your faith and continued growth in Christ. The first reality that the ultimate Q&A exposes is the uncertain response that so many people have. And the second reality, the ultimate question reveals the ultimate answer necessary for salvation and spiritual growth. The third reality that should radically impact 
our faith and continued growth in Christ is the universal impact. The Lord, after hearing Peter's confession of who he is, says something additional to Peter in the presence of the disciples. Verse 18, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This passage has huge ramifications on church history, especially within the walls of Roman Catholicism. This verse actually functions as the proof text for Roman Catholicism and the papacy. And Catholic teaching claims that this verse initiated the apostolic secession of Peter as the first pope and that the spiritual keys to the church have been passed down through the century from Peter to other popes. There are numerous problems with this position, and for the sake of time and efficiency, I'm just going to share what they are and provide a one-sentence description, okay? I wrote an entire paper on this in seminary, Matthew 16, 18. It was an assignment for us, and those who are interested, there's some great exegetical insights and details. You can email me if you would like that paper. I resisted the temptation to add it to my notes and to, 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 to go into that right now. But let, let, let me just share these four problems with, with this position. First, Catholics claim that Peter is the antecedent for the word rock in verse 18. And a closer look at the original language reveals that this is very poor exegesis. Second, the keys that the Lord mentions in verse 19 are to the kingdom of heaven, not to the church. So to claim that the keys are to the church and that they've been passed down through the centuries is an entirely false claim. Third, the authority to bind and loose people from their sins is a responsibility that is dispensed to the entire church in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. And so to limit it to the apostle Peter is an unbiblical notion. Fourth, the office of the papacy is not mentioned anywhere in scripture. There are two offices in church leadership, the office of elder and the office of deacon. And that's it. I wrote um, that paper. And again, if you, if you want access to it, you can email me. It'll provide you with more details. But what does God want us to see when we study this passage? What does he want us to see? There's this accession here. There is. But it has nothing to do with a church office or the papacy. There's this accession of confessions. Peter provides the ultimate answer that has universal impact as he he shares his confession of Christ. And so there is a, a, a secession here, and it's related to the ministry of the gospel and the exaltation of Christ. There's confessions of Christ. And I actually brought a book in with me. Some of you may have seen this. It's a big book, is it not? That's a, that's a mighty book. That's a man's book is what we call that. That's a, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great book. And it's called Martyrs, Mirrors. And as the subtitle indicates, the story of 17 centuries of Christian martyrdom from the time of Christ for those who, were, who made public confessions about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can open this up and it'll give you all the accounts and tell you the stories about how they're executed, killed. Not a faith that's going to have you kill people, but a faith that you're willing to die for. That's what the confession does. Who is the one who builds his church? Make no mistake about it, my friend. 
In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says it clearly, and he says it emphatically and plainly. I will build my church. The church is built by Christ because he is the source and the object of our faith and spiritual growth. And Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 shares this. And our Lord is so confident about building his church that he even goes on to say that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Or your translation might say, will not overpower it. And the gates of Hades has often been interpreted as representing the evil forces of Satan attacking the church. But a great insight from one theologian shared this quote, Gates are not instruments of warfare. Their purpose is not to conquer, but to protect those behind them from being conquered, or in the case of prison, to keep them from escaping. The word Hades, which corresponds to the Hebrew word Sheol, refers here to the abode of the dead, not to eternal hell. When the terms gates and Hades are properly understood, it becomes clear that Jesus was declaring that death has no power to hold God's redeemed people captive. Death's gates are not strong enough to overpower or prevail and keep in prison the church of God, whose, whose Lord has conquered sin and death on her behalf. And this also helps us understand the spiritual keys that are talked about in the very next verse, that they've been entrusted to the church, the body of believers, which has the authority demonstrated um, by the practice of church discipline that you'll get two chapters later in Matthew 18. They let someone know whether or not they are bound or loose from their sins by their fruit of repentance or lack of. And so this is the secession of the great confession. And it does involve people. It involves you and I, my friend. And we think about the people that were faithful, that walked in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, who shared their faith, who shared the gospel, and how that secession of confessions has continued throughout the centuries. And it's brought us to this very moment, to this very time that we're living in right now. Right here, Fullerton, California, Cornerstone Bible Church, location right here, downtown Fullerton, access to people who are uncertain and have no idea about the Lord Jesus Christ. No idea. Some are students and professors right here at Fullerton College. Some are customers sitting in Starbucks right now, just at the corner of Commonwealth and Harbor. Some are commuters who are going to be right outside these windows waiting for the train, waiting for someone, waiting for someone to be faithful to the gospel to come and to let them know that they can be certain about who the Lord Jesus Christ is, that they can be certain about their eternal destiny, that they can know for certain. My prayer for all of us is that we'll be faithful to that which he has entrusted to us in this building, that we'll have an opportunity to continue to preach the gospel, celebrate the gospel, to live the gospel, and to magnify him. May we walk in his strength. May we look to him for courage when we need it. And he will bless our ministry efforts because the Lord Jesus Christ says, he says that he is going to build his church. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you're gracious and kind. And those of us who have trusted in you, those of us who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, we praise you. It is the very reason that we gathered this morning to come to this place to thank you for what you have done, and the truth that you have allowed to prevail in our lives. Your word reminds us that the gate is wide and the path is broad that leads to destruction, and that there are many, many on it. And Father, burden our hearts with the reality that there are people right here in this vicinity 
that are on that path. I pray, Father, that you would wake us up at night. I pray that you would fan a flame and a desire embedded into every heart of every believer in Cornerstone Bible Church, that we would burn with passion to help people understand who you are, that they would come to know you, and that we could work in conjunction with your will, that you would be drawing people to saving faith. I pray for all of those that are uncertain. I pray, Father, that you would be doing your work as you are around the clock and that we would be able to walk in faithfulness in conjunction with your will. And we look forward, this is our first Sunday, we look forward to seeing what further and additional instruction that you have for us in the Sundays ahead. We want to thank you again for just this opportunity to gather. You're so good to us. We ask that you'll bless the remainder of our morning. Give us gospel conversations just even in our time. Have us take some time, Father. I pray it would be your will that we could just even be praying about people that we love and people that we have a passion for and people that we want to see know you with certainty, that we want you to save. We know that you'll glorify yourself through it. We commit all these works to you. We praise you in the name of Christ. Amen.